Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this virtual program of the Commonwealth Club of California, featuring Republican political activist, Dr. Charles Munger, Jr. I'm Dr. Mindy Romero, founder and director of the Center for Inclusive Democracy at the University of Southern California Price School of Public Policy, formerly known as the California Civic Engagement Project. Uh, we recently changed our name. I will be your moderator for today's program. Uh, in the Bay Area, the Commonwealth Club has suspended its, probably many of you know, suspended its in-person programming, but we have introduced special new virtual programming. You can learn about these offerings at the club's website, commonwealthclub.org. We also appreciate you considering donating to the club. Uh, if you wish to do so, please text the word donate to 415-329-4231 or visit the club's website. To our audience, we want you to be involved, of course, even in a virtual format. That's standard for all Commonwealth programs. If you'd like to submit questions to Dr. Munger, please add them to the text chat area and we will try to integrate as many as we can and as many as that's possible into the discussion. So now it's my pleasure to introduce our guest, Dr. Charles Munger, Jr. Uh, Dr. Munger advocates good government, representative politics, and a strong, responsible two-party system for California and the nation. Viewed by many as a moderate Republican, Dr. Munger campaigned in 2012 for California's current open uh, two, uh, top two primary system and was the co-author of 2010's Proposition 20 to keep elected representatives separate from the process of creating congressional districts. He believes both have worked to encourage true representative democracy or government. Uh, Dr. Munger, Munger served uh, as chairman of the Santa Clara County Republican Party from 2012 to 2015. He holds a PhD in atomic physics from UC Berkeley and is one of eight children of Charles Munger, Vice Chairman of the financial holding company, Berkshire Hathaway. As we head towards this election, we'll hear his unique thoughts on the power of our political reform, of political reform in an era where gridlock and unfortunately cynicism abound. And I think that's an understatement right now. Uh, Dr. Munger will begin with some opening remarks and then I'll rejoin him for our conversation. So please help me welcome Dr. Munger. Thank you. I appreciate that very kind introduction. I'm here to speak of two optimistic things. They're reforms that have already occurred, and they have demonstrably made California politics better. Many people had a hand in these. I certainly had a hand in them. And I hope that you will be encouraged to see that, yes, in a time of rising partisanship, uh, we still can manage to work together for some things. So the title of this talk is Political Reforms That Work, the Top Two Primary and Redistricting Reform in California. And I will take you through a few highlights of how these worked out. If you're curious, there, is, there are close to 150 odd pages of analysis, which I won't take you through, uh, which are available at the website of the Schwarzenegger Institute under my name. And I encourage you, if you, I say something that sounds implausible, that can't be true, I assure you there's a graph or a figure or a chart that will demonstrate that that is in fact so. So with that, let me have the next slide, and I'll walk you through the fundamentals of the first of these reforms, which is the top two primary. First, we have to understand what we started with and where we went. So before the elections of 2012, uh, we had a system in California of partisan primaries. That meant that if you were a voter and went to the polls in the primary, you were restricted to vote only for candidates of one political party. No one, whether they're a registered Republican or Democrat or an independent or anyone else, could actually vote for this Democrat or that Republican. The second thing that this primary system had was, if you were registered with no political party, while it was technically possible for you to vote in a party primary, it was actually quite difficult. So the participation of so-called independent voters never rose above a few tens of percent in these primaries, even though the fraction of the electorate was, constant, was significantly rising. 
that was uh, declined to state or independent. And each of those political parties had uh, the privilege of nominating one and only one person to the general, to put before the general electorate. They had one slot. And this meant that whatever decision was made in a district that was heavily Democratic or heavily Republican would be made only by the registered Republicans or the registered Democrats in that district, the general election being something of an afterthought. So what was changed by the top two primary? Top two primary comp changed several things. The first is uh, anyone could vote for any candidate in the primary. You walked in, you got a ballot, they listed the Republicans, the Democrats, the Libertarians, the declined estates who were all on the ballot. You could vote for one in one election and one in another. There were no restrictions. There were no barriers to participation if you were a declined estate voter. There are no barriers to participation if you belong to a political party that wasn't qualified in the state of California. You could still vote for whomever you pleased, a member of your party if they were running or a member of another party if they weren't. And we said that the top two vote getters in the primary, independent of party, would go before the general electorate. So it might be two Democrats in a Democratic district. It might be two Republicans in a Republican district. The final decision was going to be made by the general election voter instead of the primary election voter. So those were the fundamental changes that were wrought. And if I may have the next slide, please. Thank you. So we made the change. You don't make a change unless there's a problem. So what was the problem? The fundamental problem was a combination of several things. One is voter participation in the California primaries had been declining over the decades. So that in fact, it was an ever smaller fraction of the electorate that was voting in those primaries and deciding which Democrat or which Republican was going to uh, serve in the legislature or Congress. You had an ever rising disaffection with the political parties. So an ever larger fraction of the electorate was refusing to register with either remaining declined to state. Uh, you had significant numbers of people in, min in minor parties who may wish to support a green or, an, or a libertarian, but unfortunately there might not be one on the ballot. And though there might, wasn't one on the ballot, they had no ability to have a say as to what, which Republican and which Democrat might reach the, the general election. You had rising demographic stratification in California. Sorry, urban, dis urban districts and, and agrarian districts tend to vote differently. Uh, you also had um, a, simply a rising political polarization. Uh, it's not entirely due to partisan primaries. It's a natural phenomenon, but it tended to create more and more safe seats that were safe for one party or another. So there were fewer and fewer districts where a Republican or a Democrat might win. It was all these decisions were being made in the primaries. And the final exacerbation hap happened to be a historical accident which led the legislature, as we will study at the end of this talk, to deliberately polarize the state, to make all the districts safe for one party or another. So there were no real decisions being made in the general election anymore. They're all being made in partisan primaries. And unfortunately, those primaries had not only smaller numbers of people, but very unrepresentative numbers of people. It's an entirely different electorate. And quite frankly, it is more partisan than the general election voter is. The center of gravity of the Democratic primary voter, and of the Republican primary voter, is different from the center of gravity of the Democratic general election voter and the Republican general election voter, let alone the decline to states who weren't affiliated with either party. So this was producing a gradual political crisis, which the top two is meant to address. So next slide, please. Thank you. So how did it work out, which is the title of this talk? Well, we got a bunch of D-on-D, uh, D, Democrat versus Democrat gen general elections in safe districts and Republican versus Republican elections in safe districts. And what you're seeing in that graph is a plot, the horizontal axis being the advantage the Republicans had in voter registration and percent over the Democrats. So you see a whole bunch of blue points um, scattered over uh, registrations of minus 20 or minus 30%. These are districts where 
Funny thing is, the Republicans are at a disadvantage of 20 or 30 percent. There is not a chance in Hades that a Republican would ever win, of the, win one of those districts. On the right side of this, you see a scattering of districts in red, which are districts where the Republicans have an advantage. It's not as much, but a voting registration advantage is not um, is actually understates the advantage a party has in a district. You usually multiply the voting registration advantage by, by one and a half to figure out what the election day difference is going to be. So once you have a 5% advantage in registration, you have a 7.5% advantage in election day if you do nothing in particular, and that's usually enough to make that seat extremely safe. So what you observe, first of all, is when we get these same party districts, same party elections, they occur in districts where the other party has no chance. The voters are overwhelmingly want someone of the other party. And so by creating these same party districts, we haven't harmed any political parties. We haven't harmed any point of view. The people in these districts just don't want the other party. The question is, who of the existing party do they want? But would they care, you could ask. And one measure of whether people care which Democrat gets into a general election between two Democrats or which Republican is to ask how much money somebody is willing to spend in order to make the change. So at the top of this graph, you see one lonely point at $13 million in a D on D on D Democrat versus Democrat election. That election isn't going to change who controls, which party controls the California legislature. It's all about issues internal, the democratic party. And that's one of the most expensive legislative races in the entire country. Um, which means that somebody really cares about that particular one. And frankly, if you look at the finances, as I do at great length, you find out people are on average willing to spend more on same party um, elections such as this than they are race, the average race where you have a Republican facing a Democrat. So people really care about these differences. Next slide, please. All right. So I'm talking about the first three years of the primaries operation. That's 2012, 14, and 16. We had 80 races for the California legislature, Assembly and Senate, also throwing in the U.S. Congress. And we, and we can ask, okay, um, let's look at these and say, which races do people really care about? Because we still have incumbents running. And if you have a popular incumbent, they're not going to be challenged by a, a member of their party in any significant way, but somebody will probably run. So you make a filter. Now, those 80 races, it turns out that in 58 of them, um, somebody made a, some kind of fight for the race. By some kind of fight, I mean they, were, they weren't outspent more than nine to one in the race. Okay, <laughs> you know, Nine to one is a pretty crushing advantage. So it's not really competitive to say that I was only outspent eight to one. But let's call them competitive. So there are 58 of them. And now we ask a very important question. Drum roll, please. How often did the person who took second in the primary, who under the partisan primary rules would never have reached the general electorate, how often did they turn that election around and win in the general and became the legislature, legislator member of Congress? Next slide, please. 19 of the 58, 19 of the 58, that's a lot. What that tells you, very interestingly, is in a system of partisan primaries, when it takes the two strongest candidates in a district safe for one party and picks one of them to be a legislator, they get that decision wrong a big fraction of the time, or to put another way, they get it right 65% of the time, not 100%, 65. If by the right member to be elected, you mean the person, the general election voter in that district really wanted. Now I have a modest proposal for you, which will, won't get 65%, but will get 50%. And it's a lot cheaper than running a whole system of general elections. Next slide, please. That's my system. If you just picked the two strongest candidates and flipped a coin to decide who would be the legislator, you'd get that right 50% of the time. Partisan primaries, we're getting that right 65. That's not a big increase. It's much better to put these major decisions before the general electorate. And believe me, the general electorate will pick what the general electorate wants 100% of the time. Next slide, please. 
Okay. Now we're going to ask another interesting question. 58 same party elections. Some of those elections had incumbents in them, and some of those incumbents were sent home. Turned out that while that, that they weren't as popular with their own people as they thought they were. So how many of those 58 was an incumbent retired? Next slide, please. 10. We knocked out 10 incumbents in same party elections rejected by their own, by essentially by voters of their own party. That is a big number. To give you some kind of scale, um, you can go over the entire previous decade when we had partisan primaries, and you people incumbents did lose for re-election three times. We knocked out 10 of them in three election cycles in California, which means suddenly incumbents are now subject to being re removed by the general election voters of their own party in districts where electing the other member, the other party, was simply never going to happen. Next slide, please. Okay. Those are pretty impressive changes to, to get from a political reform. There are all kinds of arguments against the top two primary, which have been raised and which I deal with one by one at length in my paper. I call them the myths, the plausible myths. You might think, for example, that if voters come to a ballot and find a D on D race and they're a Republican, that they just won't vote because they don't like Democrats. Or the converse might be true. Some Democrats in an R versus R, they come to it, they just, they won't vote. That might be a plausible initial hypothesis, but it's completely belied by the facts. They vote. And you can, one can go down the list. Does it harm the minor parties? Does it diminish voter turnout? Is it a conspiracy to make, to bankrupt the Democratic Party and make them spend large amounts of money on elections? Is it a conspiracy against the Republican Party because they're doing so badly in California and this was just the, something to administer the quietus? I'm happy to take any of these questions at, uh, during the interview or any others, but I haven't been able to find a reason why the top two primary is anything but an enormous improvement in governance. One more figure um, that I'll, two figures I'll leave for your attention before I go on to another topic. It turns out that the total number of voters that vote in these same party runoffs and make the decision in the general election is essentially double the number made, double made to vote in the primary. Double, 1.9 if you care. That's an enormous improvement on getting representative government. You're actually asking everybody about the most critical decision. What, there's not, it's hard to raise an objection to that. Um, and it also has another phenomenon, which is many safe seats draw multiple contenders. You've got a safe flip a coin, Republican seat. I guarantee you four or five people will run. Somebody will win, but he isn't necessarily even the Republican who represents the Republicans in the primary particularly well. Because if you have a, if bluntly put, if five or four rational people run and one crazy with a following, the crazy with the following might win the plurality in the primary. His own voters might have rejected him against any of his contenders, but they didn't get, the, get a chance. But in a top two race, you may get a crazy, but you may get a sensible candidate too. And the general election voter, the general election Republican voter has a chance to wade in there and say, I know the, re the result of the primary was a little screwy, but we have a chance to fix that before we send a legislator or a member of Congress to make decisions for us. Next slide, please. Okay, so this is a, a, if you want to find the full research papers on this, you can find them at the Schwarzenegger Institute under my name. Next slide, please. Okay, the other reform that I've had a lot to do with was redistricting reform, which was the act of removing from the California legislature the power to draw the, the boundaries of the districts for the state legislature and the U.S. Congress. It's drawn by an independent commission of citizens called the Citizens Redistricting Commission. I'm going to show you that what happened in two slides. So first slide, please. As you look at those graphs, a bit of history. Um, 
there had been a deadlock in the 1990s when a Republican governor, Wilson, and a Democratic legislature were so polarized they could not agree on district lines, and the Supreme Court drew the legislative and the U.S. House district lines. If you draw a bunch of lines, of course, you corral voters according to their political parties. And districts, therefore, have different representations of political parties based on how you draw those lines. And what you see in dark blue are what the Supreme Court came up with in the 1990s. Take that top slide. You see sort of a whale distribution. The horizontal axis is voter registration, as you've seen in an earlier slide. If you're to the right of cent to the right, you have a Republican district, and you have left, you have a Democratic district. In the middle, where it's a pretty even between the two parties, you have the districts that political parties, either political party might win. Okay? And they drew basic smooth distributions. Then the legislature got back into the game in 2000, and they said, we are going to draw the district lines. And there, a curious phenomenon happened. The legislature in California was entirely Democratic. The U.S. the Federal government was entirely Republican, both houses and the presidency, which led to sort of a balance of, well, terror. And they decided not to use redistricting in its traditional way, in, which would be to, for the majority party in the state to try to corral extra seats. They agreed they wouldn't corral extra seats, but they did agree to make all the incumbents safe. That's what incumbents do if they can't steal seats. So when they drew the lines, they deliberately forded up the entire state into safe Republican and safe Democratic districts. And these, the distribution of voter registration of those graphs in green for the Assembly, Senate, and Congress. The bottom line is probably the most interesting one for congressional purposes. That, that bottom green distribution, there are no districts left which were an even mix of Republican and Democrat. They wiped every single one of them out. In total, over the legislature and the U.S. House, they killed 25 or so districts. And the resulting politics then got enormously worse in our state because, as I said, we had a partisan primary system. Who went in office was determined by primary election voters. There were no districts left that any caucus of any legislature could lose if they were too extreme or didn't pay attention to the people's business. And the only thing that mattered on, for your political career is, was pleasing the primary election voters of your party. It was an electoral irrelevance what the general election voter thought of you, and it darn near destroyed the state of California, the combination of the partisan primary and the gerrymandering. But I said, we fixed this problem. So we got a commission, and it drew the lines. What happened? Next slide, please. Okay. Over the decade... There were demographic changes in the political makeup of the districts that the legislature drew. For example, if you look at the bottom of the dark green images here, that's the distribution for the U.S. House seats. There are now a couple seats which were competitive, not that they wanted them to be, actually, but they, the demographics changed. But there's still a hole, an empty bin there. It's just moved a few percentage points to the left because the state moved more democratic. But it, that shadow is still there. The yellow curve underneath it is what happened when the commission drew its lines. There's no hole. They didn't deliberately create high, highly partisan, highly polarized districts. And if you look at the other figures, you will see that, yes, the shadow of the legislative gerrymander, the commission erased it. How did it erase it? It didn't erase it because it tried to create Democratic and Republican districts in, and, some, and a certain number where they were equal. They weren't allowed to look at voter registration. They had to simply try to keep cities and counties and communities together. They were blind to partisan registration. And when they, when they were all done and the maps were all done, this is what the result was. They were, and it turns out that if you draw districts, not looking at party registration, you get competitive districts in all the places that they normally should have been. And politics in California has since been quite a bit healthier. So with that, I will go on to the next slide. And I'm happy to answer all the questions that you might be forwarding in. 
and that the moderator will present to me. And thank you for your attention this afternoon. I hope you hang on for the rest of the questions. Well, thank you very much for that um, fantastic presentation. So I'm going to jump in. We have uh, questions that have been coming in um, while you've been speaking uh, regarding specifically your presentation, but also your thoughts on related reforms and kind of the state of our democracy. Um, so, but first, I, I just want to kind of touch on, um, you know, your, there was a slide there when you were talking about the, the, the top two primary system where you were kind of debunking all of the myths and getting ahead of uh, what I'm sure is very common questions you get all the time in, when you give a presentation like this. But one I'd like to just touch on, um, specifically, maybe one of the criticisms, um, if, you, if we'll call it that, or at least one of the questions that come up um, that I don't think you covered in there, um, was this idea of gaming the top two system. Um, what are your thoughts around that? And specifically, often we're, when we're hearing it, it's, it's the charge is usually that, you know, Republicans will kind of game a, a Democratic uh, strong district um, that might have multiple candidates, for instance, that are Democrat, um, come in and try to kind of split that vote and put one or two Republicans in that end up getting, you know, the, the, the top two uh, votes in a district. So any thoughts around... Um, you know, those, uh, those charges that are, that are commonly made sometimes. Oh, certainly. First is, it does happen. It does happen. The classic mechanism is, is that you have a district which had, where, for example, two of one party run and four of the other. And, they, and you split up a lot more of your primary election voters if you have four candidates than two. And it can turn out that you get two people of the party, which is actually trailing in registration in the district. This has now happened three times over the last decade in all of the races in California. Um, it is important, however, to note that, first of all, the fact that it happens doesn't necessarily mean a party has been harmed in the sense that suppose you have two Democrats and two Republicans and you, they're even strength and they're running in a district that's 50-50 Democrat-Republican. An outsider would say there's about a 50-50 chance you're going to get a Republican or a Democrat. Well, the chances in such a district you get two Democrats and two Republicans are equal. So the fact you get two of one party doesn't mean the other party has been harmed. They had their chance of getting two. So it's not systematically biased toward anybody. Um, I also point out that in the occasions when it's happened, in the next election cycle, they threw the rascal out. Uh, turns out it's hard to hard to do a repeat. <laughs> um, the so it's a problem, but it's a self healing problem, evidently. And it's worth comparing that to what happens in the U.S. House if you elect the wrong flip a coin Democrat. All right, the guy who should have represented the district lost in his primary, and you've got Mr. Smith here that nobody much likes, but he's going to sit there for a long time. How long would it take, on average? for the Democratic Party to retire Mr. Smith. Well, that's easy. You can look at retirement rates in the, in the US Congress and partisan primaries. On an average, it would take about 200 years. You lose only a percent or two of the House and same party primaries across the country, historically over about a decade. So I have a problem, but it's a problem that heals itself in two years. And the other problem which we'd had in many congressional districts was not solving itself. It would never solve itself. You'd, you'd wait your whole lifetime to wait to see if one of those people turned out just because he no longer fit his district. So he greatly improved things net, although I concede that in a district or two, you do have problems like that. One more follow-up on top two. Uh, so you talked about the impact, uh, the challenge on, on uh, turnout, how primaries generally very low turnout, and the impact uh, uh, that we've seen so far uh, uh, with top two on turnout. What about the general election? Um, because, of course, in many cases where we do have uh, often two Democrats, for instance, or if we have two Republicans running, there also can be the, the charge that the, the party that isn't represented in the general, um, that can have an impact on turnout. Um, what would be, what's your, I guess, response to that? You're thinking about that. Okay. Well, we have to, we have to realize what we know and what we don't. We... Um, what we do know, first of all, is that we can't find any perceptible uh, decrease in the number of voters who, vo who just choose to cast some form of ballot in the general election. They vote. 
we can look at different races and ask a more subtle question. Yes, you voted, but did you vote in that D on D or R on R race, particularly if the people in that race aren't of your party? So, what it, And this is what the numbers turn out when you look at the, say, state assembly districts. In partisan primaries, if you cast a ballot at all, typically because you cared about the governor or the U.S. president, one or the other was always on that general election ballot, or maybe there was a ballot proposition you cared about. When you got down to an assembly race, you skipped it 5% of the time. For whatever reason, you know, you didn't care, whatever. You only get 95%. So when you get so we can look at the same party races and and it's by the way under this under the top two when you get an R versus D it's the same ninety five percent figure. When you look at the same party elections, it is eighty seven percent. So they skip a little bit more. But curiously, there's no partisan correlation that we can that I've been able to find. Namely, for the assembly races, if you're a Republican facing two Democrats, you vote just as often as if in that race, you're filling out your ballot, but you're voting it as a Democrat facing those two Democrats. And my interpretation of that is if most people, even if they're not a Republican or Democrat, have an idea of which one they kind of like. So when you come to a race and you don't know very much about it and you're filling out your ballot, you look at the R and the D next to it, and you know you like one better than the other, and that's how you vote. If you're the kind of voter who might skip election anyway. Then you come to a same party runoff and they're both Ds. There's no party clue to tell you which one you might like. You have to go Google something or do some research or there are two Rs. And I think people are, you know, Republicans and Democrats, they, if I'm a faithful Republican, I don't know which of the two I, I want to vote for, I skip it. So they skip a little bit more, but they don't skip enough more uh, not to make the Republican vote in a D on D very important as to who wins. Okay, which is frankly historically unprecedented in safe democratic districts. And the converse is also true. You actually care what the minority Democrats think in a Republican district about which Democrat they want to have represent them in the Congress or or the House. So it's a it's a phenomenon, but it's not a decisive phenomenon one way or the other. Thank you. And you make a really interesting point, of course. Those party cues, those party IDs that so many voters use to make their choices at the ballot box, uh, is more challenging um, in uh, under the top system. Um, but at the same time, uh, it does mean that uh, for those voters that take the time to do that additional research, um, presumably, you know, we've uh, we have voters that are even more informed about the process. But it is a challenge, though, for some voters, right, in terms of being able to do that additional information in, in lieu of skipping. Well, also remember, if you really know about the if you're if you really know about the difference between two flip a coin Democrats and you care, you probably voted in the primary. In fact, you'd insist on it. But half the people in the state vote in the primary and don't vote in the general. So it's not a big surprise that somebody who isn't doesn't care enough about the difference between two Democrats or two Republicans to go out and research them when it's a primary and turn out and vote. They, when they get to the general election, some of those people won't rise to the thought that, you know, maybe I should figure this out. That's what I think the phenomenon is. Uh, but I don't know. I can't prove it one way or the other. I can just look at the statistics to see how often it occurs. Great. I think you've just identified a few more research questions. Uh, thank you. So let me ask you about uh, redistricting, the second part of your presentation. Um, so, of course, recently, for our viewers who may not be aware, um, the the new commission was just seated and, and finalized its membership. Um, I'd like to know your thoughts on its current composition and just a, a little bit of background, um, not still part of your answer, but um, of course there's been a, a lot of a lot of work, a lot of recruitment um, and some concern um, leading up to the finalization of the committee membership in terms of you know questions of representation, particularly for Latinos for quite a while. Um, what do you think of the current makeup and um, and also, of course, going forward in the work that they have to do, how do you see that? What are the challenges for them, um, you know, given the current environment and uh, certainly not to mention um, the, the, the issues we're having currently with the census as well and the data that they need to be working with? So that was a two-parter. Well, let me, take, let me take the easy question, which is what do I think of the current makeup of the commission? And that is, I don't have an opinion because... 
I haven't even looked. I don't have any control over it. I will see what they do. Um, I do remember from the um, previous commission that a wrinkle in the way the law was written, which turned out to be wise, is that the commission is chosen out of a pool of people by random selection, the first group. There are 14 members on the commission. You pick eight of them. They form a mini commission. They appoint the remaining six. And it sounds complicated, but what it proved to be necessary because it, though in that particular commission, only 10% of the state is Asian, but we got uh, four Asian people out of eight on that eight member bank because that's the way a random draw happened to work. We could have gotten six women and two men. We could have gotten any manner of accidental thing. And we asked the commissioners basically then to balance it out. Felt Dice don't know what skills you need and who you're not representing. We asked them to use their power and a point. So there's a mechanism by which we can get a balanced commission, um, even if an, the die rolls aren't balanced. The commission is facing a particularly, well, an unprecedented uh, system, which is this problem, which is that COVID-19 may delay the U.S. census. And there's been a Supreme Court case that's specifically pointed out that if the U.S. census were delayed four or five months, four months, that it would affect give the commission no time to work. And the de deadline for the commission to operate were, surprise, written into the Constitution, as they are in many, many states. And a suit was brought, um, partly at the request of Common Cause and, part, and through the, um, by the state legislature and with the acquiescence of the California Secretary of State, to ask that the deadlines be waived. And I participated in some of the lawsuits over this one because it's a delicate question. When you shorten the time, by, if you give the commission more time, there's less time for other things. Among, among them, for the Supreme Court to draw the districts if the commission fails, which it might, it's a human institution. And we provided a second string to the bow. And if you take away all the time for the court to respond, there are risks there. So the, what the current state of the affairs is the commission has been granted by the U.S., by the California court, uh, the time it needs through as late as December. And basically the court decided to take onto itself the problem. If they got very little time to respond, then they thought that was the, the, the correct path. So that's what the, the commission is going to do. I hope that they um, follow the precedents of the previous commission, which is to have an enormous number of public hearings as to where people want the lines to be and how they want their communities kept whole and where the trade-offs are. Um, I also hope that, um, that they come to a resolution that we don't, I would prefer the citizens to draw the lines, not the courts myself, but we have a backstop there if, if we go. And I also hope, frankly, that if it turns out that, that the census is not delayed, that the commission is cognizant that giving themselves an extra four months may hurt other parts of the process, and they shouldn't use that four months heedlessly, um, that they should finish earlier than they, might, than they now constitutionally can for the sake of the rest of the process. And uh, we'll see how that plays out. Basically, I'm whole, I'm, my opinion on that will wait until I find out what, if anything, the new Congress and new president may do about the census when they convene in January. They may delay it. They may institute, keep it going on its original path. There's no telling. And then, of course, regard, uh, with regard to what you said about the public hearings um, in the time of COVID, that's also additionally challenging, right? Going to be, you know, I don't, I don't envy them, but I didn't envy the, the original commissions either. Um, but I am pleased about one fact I know about this commission is that um, this is a pretty obscure commission, right? You know, you're drawing the lines. Most people don't even know anything about the process of drawing the lines. There are 14 seats on this commission and something like 16,000 people applied to sit on it. 16,000? That may sound like an awful lot. Of course, the number in the previous cycle was 36,000. So you could say I would be disappointed by having only 16. But frankly, I'm amazed and pleased that that many people on the second go round, when it's not all new and fresh and everyone knows how, how much work it's really going to be, that that many people chose to apply. So 
we will have, there's enough talent there to make, to make a whole, to make a, uh, a fine commission. Well, I appreciate your optimism. I'm sure you know, of course, the, the lower number for many people has been concerning because of the question of representation, right? Smaller, smaller pot of, of uh, applicants. Um, but, um, but thank you. Uh, I'm going to move on to asking you about other, the potential of other reforms. Um, so what about other reforms? Uh, what do you think in terms of, you know, we've got a number of reforms over the last uh, several election cycles that have been implemented in California, the Voters' Choice Act, um, uh, conditional voter registration uh, being expanded out all polling places in California, of course, automatic voter registration, the list goes on. I'm wondering if there is uh, something that's on your horizon uh, that you can talk to us about that has not yet been implemented that you think should be implemented. Um, and then also tell us what, getting back to the beginning of your presentation, you know, what is it fixing? So what's the kind of wrong, what's the, the fix that it would bring and, and how it would do that, I guess. Well, you're correct in that many changes have been wrought in the California election system over the last few years. It's one of the reasons I haven't extended my paper from the first three election cycles, because every time somebody throws in a new change, you would have to somehow disentangle the effects of that change, which, you know, from whatever else you're trying to study. Um, I don't have a settled opinion about the various changes that you've mentioned, because, you know, I, at, at some point I got tired, <laughs> if I may, if I may. Um, the, uh, about trying to keep up with absolutely everything. I have for the last nine months been looking at a different direction of reform, I'd mentioned that you do get these races in California where you can look and see, hey, that's a Democratic, clearly a Democratic seat, and we've got two Republicans in the general election. Yeah, they, you know, they'll throw them out in two years, but what, wouldn't it be nicer if that just didn't happen? And one way of making that not happen would be to allow not two members, but three onto a general election ballot since the likelihood in a Democratic district that the Republicans would somehow split the vote that no Democrat got in the general election ballot would be essentially zero. But that causes, there's an enormous complication from that, which is now you have to have an election system which is somehow fair when you have three candidates running simultaneously. Particularly, for example, if two are Democrats or one are and one is Republican, because you, you can't do it by plurality because you're splitting the Democratic vote. And so how would you do that fairly? How do you ensure that, um, that the incentives given to win a three-candidate race are really the incentives that we want politicians and voters and interests to follow, um, et cetera, et cetera? That's a very complicated question. My current thinking about it is, is that if you go in this direction of having more candidates, it's almost certain to be the case that you want to use ranked choice ballots, but with what's called a Condorcet compatible method, not an instant runoff method to decide who actually wins. Um, it's taken me nine months to reach that conclusion, and I'm far from advocating that it needs to be done, but I am, I've gotten as far as figuring out that if you do it, you should use a Condorcet compatible method rather than instant runoff. And that you may be aware, people have been have the people asked the San, the San Diego City Council to put an initiative on the ballot to have the San Diego mayoral and city council races done that way. There are states of the union. There, I think there are three states of the union where there are um, initiatives on November asking the people if they want to implement multiple, you know, ranked choice ballots. Uh, Maine does this for its uh, House and its U.S. Senate races. So it's a political reform that people are looking at seriously. And, you know, since I helped do the top two, if there's a way of improving it by making it a top three or four, then I want to know which side of it I want to be on, whether I say that's a good idea or whether I think in the end that's a bad idea. That I haven't decided, but I am looking at it. And actually, one of our viewers' questions was, uh, was asking your opinion around ranked choice voting. So I hear you talking about uh, maybe a top three choice that would be essentially a form of ranked choice voting. Well, yeah, top three would be to some, I guess I've been a little unclear. First of all, rank choice, rank choice ballots would mean when you got to the polls, you'd, be, you'd have take three candidates. You'd rank them one, two, and three. Okay, that's your voter experience. Somebody has to have a rule for taking your first, second, and third choices and everybody else's and saying who wins. And it matters greatly exactly what system you have. 
Um, the common system advanced is instant runoff, which would say with three candidates, look, um, if your candidate has the fewest first place votes, um, then you're, we're going to deem your candidate defeated. And then we're going to ask, well, what was your second choice? And the base of your second choices and everybody else's first choices will decide who the remaining candidates win. Sounds reasonable. But it has a problem, which is you're only looking at the second choices of part of the electorate. You're not looking at the second choices of the people whose candidates made it into the final round. Whereas there are voting systems which say, oh, no, that's a mistake. You should look at everybody's second choices simultaneously, um, which I think is correct. And you also need to avoid gaming, whereby if um, somebody may choose which of his opponents to try to defeat simply because, uh, not on policy grounds, but because he's worked out that if they can defeat them, they, that the, their second choices are, will flow to him. Whereas if he defeats somebody else, their second choices will flow to his remaining opponents. And, it, and it, you get some odd voting behavior and, um, and a, an odd strategic behavior, which does not seem to me to be in the public interest entirely. It may not be bad, but there's, I think, better out there. So that's how that works. It's, it's, it's not so much, it, it's, it's not an unsolved problem, but it's a matter of, a lot of people weighed in on the subject and not everyone who has done so is either clear. <laughs> there are a lot of, you know, from my tribe, which are the pointy headed academics who aren't very good at explaining things, but know some things. And there are a lot of people who frankly don't know what they're talking about, but who are very loud and untangling the truth is uh, time consuming though. I think I'll get. Thank you for, for, for providing that additional detail. That's what I was hoping for to, to connect this. Um, so looking at the questions that we have and the time remaining, um, you know, I, I think I want to just turn a little bit away now from reforms, at least in terms of how we've been talking about it, right? Electoral, the voting process, um, how members get into power and so forth, and talk about money, very related, <laughs> clearly. Um, but Citizens United, um, what are your thoughts there in terms of Citizens United? That's one of our viewer questions. And then do you have, you know, instead of just talking about your opinion there, do you have an alternative or how do you think about the, the larger topic of money and politics and um, why it's necessary to continue to have these conversations? Well, I tend, first of all, full disclosure, you know, after you spend north of $50 million of your own money on politics, which I have done, okay? People ask you why you should have that much power that you can put these things before the voters and you can support candidates and you can do this, but the average person can't. And my response to that has always been, first of all, you, amazingly seen, there are a lot of people who have wallets who don't agree with me at all and they're working on the other side. So together, we are actually managing to put an argument before the voters, but unless we actually have the right of it and can persuade them, we don't automatically win. We, sort of cancel, we can sort of cancel each other out. Uh, I tend to be, therefore, of the opinion that the problem with money in politics is not that we have so much of it, it's that we don't have enough. Uh, we spend a few dollars a citizen on the U.S. presidency, and I think if we spent $10 a citizen there wouldn't be any further advantage to money because everyone would have heard it. There won't, everyone would have heard everything. Um, it'd be like the Whitman-Brown election in California, which by the time that election was over, I think if you gave either of those people $10 million and say, spend it any way you want, you couldn't have moved that election one. You couldn't have moved that election more than a percent. It, money would simply cease to be important because basically there'd be so much of it sloshing around that everybody would have access to everything that they needed. I do feel very strongly, however, that money needs to be traceable and accountable. I have always signed my name to the bottom of every one of my campaigns. I've always had public websites that said who I was and what, what I was doing and why. And I don't think there should be hidden money. Um, I think it should be easier. I, I do agree I'm, that, uh, that the big boys should, should have much clearer disclosures necessarily than the little boys. But I'm not sure, for example, that if I managed to get you know, 500 people to give $500 a piece to somebody that I shouldn't be flagged as an important person in the political process. Um, 
but you know, basically, I, you know, I do believe my history says that occasionally you just have to let somebody try to make an argument just because they think it's right. And if you think fifty million dollars is a lot of a few election cycles, you can try taking on. I mean, I, we have redistricting reform in California because I wrote a fourteen million dollar check. All I was doing at the time was taking on the um, at the Speaker of the House of Representatives and the Speaker's own state when the entire when the entire legislature, with the exception of the governor at the time, and the entire federal government belonged to the Speaker's own party. And I took on one of the two largest political parties, the largest in the state. If you like redistricting form, you have to let people like me try to bring these arguments to you because they aren't, you know, no one else is. Sometimes you have to go with the person who just has a conviction and wants to make make a case. And I think net, we will be better off over the next century and long after my bones are dust if we let people uh, and organizations try to make the case of the public and not rely entirely upon our legislature or the current political institutions of the time uh, to try to make those cases. I think the certain amount of ferment is good. And I think that that's, uh, that's, that tends to be my thinking on, on money issues. So I have to ask you then, um, in the case, right, to allow, as you said, the big boys, I think is what you were to, um, to be able to make their case to the public what about, um, you know, in this day and age, uh, all the conversation, of course, and deep concern around misinformation and rhetoric kind of flying around in the use of, you know, tools like social media. And we know there's government interference and all of that. But I'm just thinking about the concerns about kind of bad actors that are out there. Any, any thoughts in terms of bad actors? And I'm not thinking of any necessarily specifically right now, but um, that, I'm, that I'm trying to, you know, tease out from you. But actors that have a lot of money, what, what, how do we work with that? Um, what do you think about that in terms of some of the dangers? Or do you see that as a danger at all? Well, it's, it's clearly the culture in the United States has changed and that there are no longer um, universally recognized arbiters of fact. Okay, Walter Cronkite is in his grave. Um, and to an increasing degree, people look at even at some institutional papers, such as the New York Times and others, and to a degree which is frankly unprecedented in my history, they don't view them as arbiters of fact either. Um, they don't view the they don't think there's as much of a division between what had been the editorial pages where anybody can say what they want and make the case they wanted, and what's going on in the newsrooms where people are deciding, well, what should we what 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 are the stories we should be telling? That's a problem with the new news industry, and partly it's a result is, is that they're no longer they're subject to enormous competitive stress. Uh, it used to be that a newspaper in a town was a, was a gold mine and you could, you would, you'd, you'd make money no matter what you said and what you did. And it gave people enormous freedom to research what they wanted. And there was lots of money for in-depth journalism and so forth. And that, you know, I'm sorry, uh, girdle advertisements and uh, obituary notices are not simply not in such number that you can afford them that way. I don't know what we're going to replace that with. What I would hope we're going to replace that with over time is that people are going to they're going to create media websites that people actually go to because they trust them and not because they will tell them what they what they want to hear. Uh, but I'm I don't know how to make that happen. There are people who, um, who who are trying to do that, but you can't make people come to your site. And it takes a long time to build a reputation. It takes only a few, a few mistakes to lose it. So I, I don't know, quite know how to solve that problem. And frankly, I'm kind of of the wrong generation now to solve that problem. That's going to be a problem for the, you know, 18 to 24 uh, years old people who are going to have to sit down and think seriously how they learn, what they learn, what they trust, and how they communicate with each other. I don't know how the nation will solve that one but it's an important problem to solve. So of course that could be another whole conversation we could have if we didn't only have just, you know, five minutes left. Um, so in thinking about the time that we do have left, um, let me take you to, um, you know, I guess back to our, you know, back to our democracy, the big picture. What do you think are the functional right now, the, the most significant threats to having a functional democracy and, 
just period in, you know, in the United States, but certainly um, anything that you want to specify in terms of California? Well, structurally, I would, there are a few things that I would go after. Little known fact, do you know how, what fraction of the legislative races in the entire country you see a Democrat facing a Republican? I mean, they're like 5,800 races. For, it's about 60%. It's been about 60 to 70% for about the last decade. So you think about political competition, you're saying, let me get this straight. There are, you know, enormous fraction where, where one of the major political parties doesn't show up. Whatever your quarrel with the political parties, isn't that a bit odd that uh, that doesn't happen? And my response to that is this is a problem with, frankly, partisan primaries. Uh, everyone can work out that if it's a safe flip a coin Republican district in some state, you know, it's not even worth bothering showing up as a Democrat and being on the general election ballot. It's, it's just hopeless. And there's no point in challenging somebody if you're a Republican because the Republican primary voters aren't going to let you, you can't make a case to the whole district because it's going to be decided by the Republicans in the primary and the same is true for the Democrats. So I think nonpartisan primaries, where you open them up to the decline of states and the independents, and you let people choose, yeah, I like Democrats generally, but this time I'm voting for that Republican or vice versa, is a very important reform. I think it's more important, frankly, than, than uh, redistricting reform, important though that has been to me. Um, I think we have a problem with the nomination of the U.S. president as a structural problem. We have... We have a we have a system whereby by the you know you can be voting in an early primary state, and two months later all the candidates you looked at are out, and you have no further role in deciding who the rest of who's going to get the nomination because they're not coming back to ask you what your opinion of the people still around. Or conversely, you can be in a late state like California, and all the people you wanted to support are gone before you actually get to say. Uh, I'm not sure how to solve that particular problem, but the the primary election system is not functioning particularly well, and uh, and I do not, and I think we could we can do better, but I don't have an immediate solution for how you allow ten people to vie for the Democratic nomination or ten people to vie for the Republican nomination uh, across the whole United States. But we have to figure out a better system than the one that we have. Um, so that, that's a, obviously those are that's a separate major problem. Um, and uh, we fixed some of the problems uh, about money. I mean, a minor one is I, I very strongly believe that if just because you're working for a living doesn't mean that somebody should be able to dictate who you give political money to. They can come to you and ask nicely, but you have to be able to say no. And we have with we have been able to say that if you're working, you know, if you're working for a living, uh, you don't, there's no union that can to just deduct the money and say, we're spending it on politics this way. And there's not a corporation that can do that either. And I think that's appropriate. I think one should have to ask. That's, um, you know, it's a base, it's, I can't imagine how, how, you know, why on earth, if I'm, if, if I'm a public school teacher and I want somebody else for mayor than you do, but there are more people of my fellow teachers who want one person than another, why I shouldn't be making several hundred dollars of political contributions to a mayor whom I don't particularly want as just, just as a condition of working as a public school teacher. That was a horrible system without a, without a pretense of justice. And it would be just as bad if you had a corporation that said, hi, welcome to working for amalgamated widgets. We're taking $500 right off the top because the corporate brass have decided they want to support somebody for mayor. And you'd say, excuse me? I'm just here to get, I'm just here to put a, you know, put food on the table for my family. What do you mean you're taking $500 at the top telling me to support politics I don't even like? Um, so we've improved that, I think. Uh, but you pointed out that we, we still have um, fundamental disagreements in the country about whether we want, for example, publicly funded elections. And if so, who gets the money? I mean, if I decide to run, are you, you know, so how do you filter the people who get, who get the public largesse because, to run? From the people who would just take the money and and run anyway, how do you how do you focus it correctly? Um, these are very complicated questions. I raise them not because I have answers, but I think that that's but it, that's a significant part of our country. I think it's probably more important in our current age that we solve the problem of where we get reliable information um, than we do the money flow at this point. We're going to have disagreements as citizens when we're presented with the same facts and we just have different values 
but we want different things. We have different aspirations. We're willing to pay for some things, not willing to pay for others. That's one thing. But if we can't even agree on the basic facts behind the dispute, there's really no hope of a uh, of some kind of unified and generally supported policy. So the people who want to work in the media field and try to give us a bunch of agreed upon facts um, are work are probably doing you know, one of the most important things anybody can do. It's not directly related to the political process because it, it touches everything. But um, I think that that's a very important thing. I just have no talent in that direction. So I don't have any uh, suggestions for that reform. I just wish someone, someone would solve that problem. You covered a lot of ground there. Uh, and if we had more time, I have follow-up questions from all of that. But um, I, I will move on to one other item because apparently we have a couple minutes. Um, so, you know, in the intro, of course, I, I, uh, I for those folks that didn't know, uh, very few people, I'm sure, um, but you're widely recognized uh, as a moderate Republican, um, very influential within the Republican Party. Um, what do you see now, given the, the current um, makeup, um, kind of state of the Republican Party in California is, and I won't, I won't ask you what, what you think of their makeup, but rather, what is your role given um, the state of the Republican Party? I guess what do you what do you see your role being, and where do you what do you want to do within the Republican Party um, as as a leader and somebody who contributes quite amount large amounts, as you mentioned, in terms of campaigns? Well, my fundamental um, desire in all my struggles from the Republican Party has been that it rep- represent the Republican voters and not the views of a handful of delegates who weren't particularly representative of those Republican voters, and that they would do their proper job, which is to support the candidates whom the Republican voters wanted to vote for and voted for in primaries, and not to not to support only the causes that the brass felt were appropriate. This led, in my time, to an absolute Goddard-Dammerung, where in response to the passage of the top two, the Republican Party the brass decided that they'd change the rules in California and say that the Republican Party, the, the delegates to the party would choose nominees and the party organization itself would be forbidden to help anyone who wasn't a nominee, particularly if some Republican other than the nominee actually won a top two race and went to the general and faced some Democrat, the party would refuse to help them. It would be, in fact be cause for um, summary, you know, because for removal from as a delegate from the party, if you did, you couldn't. Now, are you crazy? You're literally going to turn the backs on all the election, on all the primary electorate, and because you, the brass, think you know better. We managed to cure that. It was a it was a Goddardammerung, but we 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 turned that corner. Republican Party supports whoever who the nominee is as a result of the elections. Parties get very inbred, and having assailed the Republican Party, I will now assail the Democratic Party, just to be fair. Um, the Republican Party has always had a tradition, which I've witnessed on many occasions, that it debates everything openly on the floor. Committees do this, the committees do that, it comes to a vote of the floor, and it's a rare convention that some committee report does not have somebody at the floor saying that's just wrong. And it's debated in front of the whole the press and everybody else. Democratic Party in the state does not do that. So, for example, having done initiatives, I'd have to go to the Democratic Party and ask them if they wanted to support them. And the process was is that the Democratic Party meets with its delegates and its conventions and all that kind of stuff, and then all those people go home. And a separate committee, meeting at a separate time, with the doors closed, decides where the Democratic Party is going to be on the initiatives. And the only thing that comes out of that room is... Yes, yes on this, no on this, yes on that. There's no record of the debates. There's no record of what happened. There's no reasoning given. There's no working press pub present. There are no ordinary delegates there. That is as autocratic and, you know, unaccountable a system as you could find on the face of the earth. And I just as, so now you have two political parties which have structural problems on how they're governed and how the people who run them want to do it. Now, I've worked in the Republican Party uh, to, to do this. Currently, the Republican Party is, you know, it, it's not as popular with the voters as, uh, as it should be. But it, the party leadership and the delegates are united around the idea that they, they're there to support whom the voters, Republican voters choose. 
And sometimes those Republicans are not entirely to the leadership's cup of tea, and sometimes they're very much, but regardless of that, they're there to help. And if we could get both parties thinking that, um, I think we the, the competition between the two of them would be would be uh, would be more e- would more be more equal, and that would mean that the voters would get the best cases made uh, as to which of them you would elect. Or, frankly, if the Libertarian Party elected put forward a Libertarian on top two system, that you that they I would hope they would do something similar. But the party organizations themselves have historically had significant governance problems that made them not really very representative of the opinion of the people whom they allegedly represent. Thank you very much. And again, that could be a whole other conversation, uh, maybe in the future. Um, but we have come to the the, uh, the end of our time together. Thank you very much for uh, a fantastic presentation and uh, for fielding all of these questions from, from our viewers. Um, so our thanks to, to uh, Dr. Charles Munger, Jr. We're also thankful uh, to all of our viewers online uh, that uh, stayed with us the entire hour. As noted earlier, the club will continue to provide programming in the days ahead, uh, much more programming. Please visit the club regularly, Commonwealth. Uh, sorry, commonwealthclub.org to learn more and, of course, to donate if you uh, are able to. I'm Dr. Mindy Romero, and now the virtual program has come to an end. Um, thank you very much. Have a wonderful day, everyone. Thank you again, Dr. Charles. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.